This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Patrick Harker, who is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. And we're going to talk to him about a whole lot of things, including interest rates, the economy, and dynamism in the U.S. economy. Pat, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's start with what's in the news right now. Yesterday, that's August 14th, the stock markets really got hammered. Mm -hmm. And the administration seems to think that everything that's going wrong with the economy is because of the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's true? No. Okay, Uh, why? (laughs) (laughs) So there are a lot of factors, a lot of forces, you know, pro and con in the economy. First, start with just where the economy is. Things are pretty good. If you look at the real economy, not the markets, the real economy, and we can get into this, is, is doing quite well, I think. Um, that said, there are downside risks, there are headwinds, and that many of those are around trade and international policy. Obviously not in our policy wheelhouse. Well, uh, so, so to back up a little bit, uh, we saw that the interest rates were, were cut by the Fed for the first time in, in, in a very long time, about eight, eight years. And uh, I was wondering if you can explain what the, some of the thinking behind that was. So I have to give the standard Fed disclaimer. I can't explain the thinking except my own thinking. And so these remarks are mine and no one else in the Federal Reserve System. So... This was a a situation in my mind where we were getting back to what I would see as neutral. And so in December, we raised rates 25 basis points. At that time, I was not supportive of that move Mm -hmm. because I thought uh, we didn't need to do that. And so I think we're just recalibrating back to where I thought we should have been uh, with the 25 basis point cut. Now, if you think about monetary policy going forward, do you think that uh, there are likely to be more interest rate cuts Again, I can only state my opinion. I do not see more cuts in the foreseeable future. I'd like to stay where we are, which I believe is around the neutral rate uh, for the economy, see how a lot of these uncertainties and uh, issues resolve themselves over the coming months before we'd make any other move. And in addition to interest rates, what are some of the other instruments that you think the Fed has at its disposal to deal with all the issues and the headwinds that you said the economy is facing now? Right. So the other main policy tools that we used during the crisis, really for the first time, were large asset purchases, QE, and forward guidance. And I think we've gone through a process now, led by Vice Chair Clarida, on looking at monetary policy in our framework. And we've done this with town halls all around the country. We had a major conference at the Chicago Fed just recently. And I think out of that, the academic community, the Fed economists, we have some sense of what worked and what didn't. Uh, All the tools worked to some extent, uh, but one of the main tools that worked was forward guidance. That just saying we're going to keep rates low and we're going to keep them for a long time low until we see certain things like unemployment move. And, and, and uh, one more question before I turn it over to my colleague, Steve. Uh, do you think the Fed's, how has the Fed's role changed since the financial crisis? I think the main change is not in the monetary policy side, but in supervision and regulation. With Dodd-Frank and other regulations, we have become much more involved in protecting and sustaining uh, the safety and soundness of the regulated financial services industry. 
And that's through a variety of tools, whether it's more capital at the banks, the banks are now very well capitalized, liquidity, provisioning, uh, et cetera. So I think that's been the major change. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on what you said about the strength of the economy. There's a, obviously a lot of opinions out there, sure. and there's been a lot of talk about recession or, or impending recession you know, in the news uh, quite recently. And so some of the um, stats that are being cited to support, I guess, the downside or the headwinds that you're talking about are, for example, second quarter GDP uh, was revised down by a full point to 2.1 percent. 2.1 is not no. negative, but it's, it's, it, it's certainly going in the wrong direction. Capital spending is weak. A lot of people think that's a big yes. deal. That's a, that's a portent of what's, what's yeah. ahead. And, uh, also, and that's despite the fact that corporations have... Uh, they're sitting on a lot of cash, and there was a big corporate tax mm-hmm. cut. And another is that exports are down. There's there's many other factors right. that that uh, those who think there might be a recession coming right. would cite. So let's take the let's look at those factors. First, we'll start with the consumer. Seventy percent of GDP is the consumer. Consumer continues to be the hero of the American economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the spending continues to be quite solid, uh, and that's really due to the. The foundation of good jobs. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're still producing jobs well above what we need in steady state. Steady state is around 100, 110,000 jobs a month. We're still producing at the 160,000 a month level. So, and wages are starting to rise, um, not across all segments, but particularly in low income uh, areas, we're starting to see wages go up. So, you've got the fundamentals of the jobs. Inflation is stable. Uh, so those two things, our dual mandate, continue to be strong. Now, uh, GDP, we have estimated now for quite a while, we'll go back to trend growth. The trend growth is around 2% of the American economy. The only way to move that trend growth has nothing to do with monetary policy. We don't move that trend growth. Trend growth is output per labor hour, productivity, and the number of labor hours, more people. Mm-hmm. We're starting to see productivity tick up today. Uh, we had a good number uh, come in. And, but the one issue we hear constantly, whether it's anecdotally or in our survey work, our outreach work, is companies need workers. One of the limits to their growth is they don't have enough qualified workers for the jobs. I wanted to ask also about China because that's been in the news a lot. Sure. There's all sorts of things going on with the, with the trade disputes. Uh, and what's your view on how that's affecting the economy now? Is it holding it back to some degree? I mean, that, that's one, another thing that people often cite sure. as, a, as a headwind. I'll go back to your uh, question, your point about uh, business investment. If you're sitting in a corporate boardroom today and you're about to make a multi-billion dollar investment in plant and equipment and it's related somehow to trade, would you do it? I wouldn't. I mean, uncertainty is, is not good for business. <laughs> so that, that's the fundamental problem. Mm-hmm. You just nailed it. Mm-hmm. It's the uncertainty around this. Mm-hmm. When I talk to companies, that's all they want is some certainty around where we're going. Mm-hmm. And think, I, I mean, I had one contact who was carefully thinking about moving his supply chain out of China to other countries. One of those countries was Mexico. And then all of a sudden, we're going to impose tariffs on Mexico. And he was exasperated. He said, I don't know how to make a decision in this environment, so I won't. That, I think, is the fundamental problem with respect to business investment right now. Do you see that changing? It just seems that every week there's, there's something like that. I hope it does. I mean, I, I hope we get some certainty because that would really help the economy. 
The other headwind, I think, is the global economy. So you've got yes. China's slowing in a way that we haven't seen for a number right. of years, many years, actually. Germany is now uh, not in recession, but they've just had right. some negative growth. Right. If they have another quarter like that, I guess by our definition, that would be an official right. recession. And then, again, the trade war. What about this? And, and the IMF uh, in July said that— uh, they, they revised their forecast down for... No, I think that is clearly one of the downside risks of the economy. Mm -hmm. And take those two examples you just gave. They're very different. In the case of Germany, they are an export-led country. Exports are very important to them, much more than the U.S. economy. So this trade war is weighing on them heavily. And obviously it's weighing on China, too, given they are in the same situation. So I think we have to keep coming back to what are these sources of uncertainty... And how do we resolve those? They're not monetary policy issues. No. <laughs> um, I wanted to get back to the neutral uh, interest rate that you right. alluded to a little bit earlier, because there's that, that's another area where there's a lot of controversy, whether sure. that neutral rate, what the Fed or maybe what Pat Harker considers yeah. the neutral rate, is at the right level. Some people think it should be lower. Uh, they base that on a lot of different factors, uh, not least of which would be inflation, of course. Right. Um, so... You're, you're happy with the, with the rate. Do you understand what credit, why critics would say oh, yeah. that it should be a lot lower? Well, the main reason How do you is answer them, I guess, the is neutral that. real rate mm -hmm. and the nominal rate that plus inflation right. is not something we can observe. We can only calculate it through models. Mm -hmm. And so those estimates vary a lot. But they generally hover around zero or maybe slightly above zero. So if you believe that, but there's a lot of uncertainty. I'm, granted, there's a lot of uncertainty around those estimates. But if you believe that and add on roughly a 2% inflation... Yeah, we're kind of there, you know, two, two and a quarter. We're kind of, that's, that's where we are. That it, but we could be wrong, right? I mean, you always have to have a heavy dose of humility in these policy jobs uh, and recognize that we have to be watchful to make sure that we're not uh, over or under accelerating the economy. By the way, I think the situation we're in right now, I think moving the interest rates 50, 25 basis points is not going to have a major effect. You mentioned earlier, companies are sitting on lots of cash. Mm -hmm. They're, they are not investing because the cost of capital is too high. I hear none of that from anyone, yeah. right? Same thing with consumers. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just don't think that, well, I think we need to adjust technically, like we did in the, the last uh, meeting, uh, to stay around neutral. I don't think these small changes are going to have a demonstrable effect on the economy. That's interesting because there was a Fed study out of, I think, Minneapolis not that long ago, which looked at um, uh, the effect of lowering interest rates on, on corporate activity. And I think the upshot was that interest rates have been so low for so long that, right. that we're, you know, you're at the point where what's a quarter point? Is that, that's not going to change a company's thinking around whether or not they're going to expand. Yeah. They're looking at other things more. Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of inflation, <laughs> <laughs> there's, um, there's been for, for years now, we've been told by some economists that uh, high inflation is around the corner, these rates are too low, it's going to overheat the economy and so forth, and that the, uh, the, the unemployment rate, if it gets below 5%, then 4%, now we're below 4%, that that's going to lead to wage inflation pressures. Right. And so far, it's, it's not happening. Um, right. Does that mean that the Phillips curve doesn't work anymore? Or is it just at, 
at something that's happening in today's economy that's different. What is the new normal for interest rates, you know, based on inflation? Right. So should we have a funeral for the Phillips curve? Yeah. <laughs> is the Phillips curve <laughs> right. dead? Is right. it dead? Exactly right. Well, it's been it's flat been a, it, for a long time. And not just recently. It's been flat for decades now. Yeah. Right. And so part of that, people are starting to, to conduct research and really try to understand why. I mean, what's really happening with inflation? Clearly, technological innovation and other factors, globalization, are affecting this. But also, if you peel back the U.S. economy and lump all goods and services into two categories, cyclical and acyclical, that is, think of it as prices that move with the economy and with interest rates and those that don't, we're becoming increasingly dominated by big sectors of the economy where interest rate movement and the cycle doesn't have a big effect on pricing. You just have to take health care. Here's almost 20 percent of the U.S. economy where prices are centrally set by the government. And so moving 25, 50 basis points will have very little impact in the short to medium run. In the long run, it will, right, if uh, interest rates move a lot because they have to build facilities and equipment and so forth. But that short to medium term impact of moving rates, we're not seeing it. And one of the potential reasons, and I emphasize potential, and there's more research that needs to be done, is this fact that many of our goods in the economy right now and services are acyclical in terms of their pricing. What's your view of the idea around this that it's really a, a deficit of demand? There's just not enough demand to, uh, to, you know, to reach full production, full productive activity for the economy. And that's why uh, we're not seeing any inflation. And that's, that may be true, mm -hmm. if you expect, particularly if you look at the global scene, right? So not just U.S. Uh, productive capacity, but globally. I mean, in certain sectors, there probably is an oversupply right now that needs to be worked through. It'll eventually be worked through, though. Uh, there's also this, you know, increasingly interesting development where there's uh, something like $15 trillion worth of financial instruments globally that have like, negative interest rates. So. Right. People are actually paying uh, governments to right. hold money for them to keep it safe. Right. Uh, what's your What's your view on that? This is a, again, a, you know, related to inflation or lack right. thereof. It's also related to um, perhaps a lack of demand in places like Europe, as we were just mm -hmm. talking about. And also, what do you think? Can that happen here? And what would What yeah. would be the result of that happening here? So, one thing you didn't mention is the yield curve and the long end of the yield curve. One of the most, the most likely suspect in my mind of why the long end is continuing to be low is that in this world where people are looking for yield and safe assets, they're buying treasuries. Right? It's the natural thing to do. And so in that case, it is going to affect the long end of the curve. We don't really affect that long end in any meaningful way, given the movements of the Fed funds rate target. Right? So it's other global forces uh, and economic forces that are moving that. So I think that is definitely true, uh, that we're seeing this rush to safe assets, the U.S. Treasuries. And that's a good thing in the sense that people still see us as a safe asset. Mm -hmm. But it, uh, it does limit our ability to conduct monetary policy across the yield curve. So uh, does that mean that it's, it's more a flight to quality than any predictor that a recession yeah. would be on the way? Yeah, I think. Well, that's, and there's some recent commentary on this that I am very sympathetic to, that I think the yield curve is, an inversion of the yield curve is, is a signal that is correlated with recessions. But there's 
little theoretical or empirical evidence to say it actually is causal, right? So park that. There are a lot of other measures that you have to look at, and we went through those. <laughs> Jobs, income, et cetera, that are, continue to be strong. So I don't think you can just look at one measure and say, well, that, then a recession's on its way. So the original mandate for the Fed starts out with, you know, balancing uh, unemployment and inflation. Like those, those are the two poles that you're, right. you're, you're asked to be looking at all the time. So we're in an economy where, at least it looks like, as we've been saying, wrapping up all the things we've been talking about here, that there's very little inflation. And even though unemployment is very low. We, we, we thought it was low when it went under 5%. Right, we right. thought it was low right. at 4.5. We thought it was low at 4.3. Right. So who's to say, where are we, 3.7 now, I think? Yep. If, there's, if there's not much risk of inflation, why not reduce rates further and see how, how low can you go with unemployment? I, and I would ask the, the opposite. Why? Uh, if, uh, if my hypothesis is correct, that Moving rates, we don't have a lot of room to move rates. Moving rates 50 basis points is not going to have a demonstrable effect. Mm -hmm. Then it also creates other risks mm -hmm. because there's a third component of the Fed, not in our dual mandate, but very important, financial stability. There is ample evidence that these rates being this low for this long start to create situations of financial instability. The, these issues of... Uh, Un, basically, easy money mm -hmm. that firms can get a hold of uh, at covenant light to no covenant. Mm -hmm. This is all being done essentially outside the regulated industry, mm -hmm. right? And we don't have a direct tie to that because we're, we're not responsible for that, those parts of the financial services industry. But they can potentially create a situation of instability and part of that, and I'm not a fan of using monetary policy because it's a relative, it is a very blunt instrument to control f financial instabilities and asset uh, valuations being too high. I'm not a fan of that because it's hard to predict. That said, we sh if we can avoid trying to create the conditions, make them even worse for such a situation, we should. Last piece, if you go back a couple of years ago when we started normalization, what did we talk about? We needed policy space. We needed policy space. So we needed, in the good times, to start raising rates so that when the bad times hit, and they will eventually, we don't know when, we have some policy space. I don't see the argument for moving now to reduce policy space when, in my opinion, things are still mm -hmm. pretty good. Mm -hmm. That's what happened in December, right? You were reducing policies. I, or you were trying to increase policy space. Yeah, but at that point, I think there was too much turmoil. We, it was, in my view, it was inappropriate to do it at that time. So um, given that rates are so low and the things you're talking about uh, make so much sense in that why should we lower it more? Or if you do lower it more, it's not going to make that much difference to the economy. We talked about that. Do you, and, and if we do have a recession and rates were lower, um, it reduces your policy space. Does... Are we asking too much of monetary policy? Yeah. Is that and 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 you know if we get into trouble with this economy, you're yep. you, you're already limited because your your rates are pretty low as they are, whether you go up fifty right, basis right. points or down fifty. Right, right. So is 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 there something wrong with the way we're 
trying to steer the economy. By relying on just one propeller, one maybe yeah. we should have two. One of my biggest and growing concerns with respect to the economy is not in the monetary policy space. So we have very limited policy space, as you said, on the monetary side. Increasingly, we have, have less and less on the fiscal policy side. That's the tool that if you look back, and as uh, scholars have looked back on the Great Recession, I think the one conclusion that is not accepted universally, but widely accepted, is we didn't do enough on the fiscal side, right? Well, think about right now. This is a good economy, and we're adding a trillion dollars a year to the federal debt. And on top of that, states have no wiggle room. State after state, given the pension liabilities that they have, the unfunded pension liabilities, they have no, no room to move. So when that shock, negative shock, hits the economy, how much space do we really have on the fiscal side? It can be very effective. The evidence shows that it can be very effective. We don't have it right now. What do you think should be done? Again, this is not right. <laughs> my wheelhouse, but I think we have to seriously think. There's only two things you could do, right? Uh, increase revenue or cut cost. I mean, and, that, mm -hmm. the, and a, some combination of those things uh, have to be dealt with. So a couple of years ago, uh, when you had organized this con wonderful conference at the Fed about uh, fintech, we had spoken about cryptocurrencies. Right. And one recent development in that regard has been Facebook's launch of uh, Libra, its, right. its uh, cryptocurrency. How do you see the difference between that and Bitcoin? And I wonder if Facebook's version of cryptocurrency might be more acceptable to you know, policy right. regulators than, than Bitcoin. So obviously the regulatory side is with the Board of Governors, so I can only give my opinion. Um, so I think the, without getting into the details of Bitcoin and, and Libra, uh, I think there's a, a real advantage of having, having a stable coin. It's hard to have a currency that's bouncing around all the time. So when you go to Starbucks, you don't know how many, <laughs> whatever coins you're going to have to use that day. And so clearly, uh, that is an area that will have an advantage over time. That said, I think, and it's only my opinion, and I am, I think I'm minority opinion on this right now. I do think we, the central bank, and central banks around the world need to seriously start thinking about central bank sta stable coin currency. Interesting. In my view, it's inevitable. Technology is evolving. Mm -hmm. uh, it, we're not going to stop that. But what we can do with a fiat currency, uh, we're the only ones that can do it. Uh, I don't necessarily think we should be the first movers in that. I think there can be some experimentation of other economies and other countries uh, to try some certain things. But I think we need to start thinking about it. I don't think it's in the immediate horizon that we would do such a thing. But I do think that uh, it is inevitable and we should start contemplating it now. So just to make sure I understand what you're saying correctly, is this like a digital version of a fiat currency that, that you think central banks around the world should be trying to introduce? Yeah. I mean, look, the vast majority of the money in the world is digital right now. Right. <laughs> it's central bank money. Um, and so... It's not a great leap. Uh, the difference is creating this kind of stable coin approach. Uh, again, I'm not sure how to do that. I'm not sure when we would do it. But at least we should start seriously thinking about it. 
I'd, I'd like to ask, uh, end with a few questions about a paper that you wrote sometime, I think it was last year, sure. about dynamism, and it sort of ties to some of the things we've been talking about, the yeah. economy. Do you think that dynamism in the U.S. economy is in sort of long-term decline, and if so, why? Oh, it's not, I think, I know. Okay. I mean, the evidence is pretty <laughs> compelling. That why, why, why is So that we so? have this, like, the American story is filled with lots of sub-stories, and myths and, and, and that we have and we hold about the American society and the American economy. And these are important because they're based on fact. And we have this myth that we are this incredibly innovative, dynamic economy. And relative to many other economies, we are. So I think it, 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 if you think about relativism, we are. But if you look relative to our past, we're not. Business formation is not what it once was. Uh, corporations are getting larger. When corporations get larger, they issue fewer patents, and the research clearly shows this. And also on the labor side, we don't move like, like we used to move, right? So one of the issues that often perplexes economists is, if there's a community out there where the jobs went away, why don't you just move to where the jobs are? We don't do that, and there's a lot of social reasons why we don't do that, like we once did. What are some of the main culprits? Well, one is, uh, if I have an aging parent, or my mom's taking care of my kids, my dad's taking care of my kids, and I can't afford daycare, I can't move away. I gotta fix, so there's a lot of other issues. Plus, there's some recent research that has been coming out of Philadelphia uh, that says, you know, we have this mythology of dynamism with respect to people moving that's really based on filling up the West and the South, right? But once they were filled up, and a generation or two has stayed there, people have a preference for staying where their family is and where their roots are. And that's a preference. It's not, you can say it's not optimal from an economic perspective, but it is because people have preferences and that's one of their preferences, important preferences is not to uproot their family from their family, uh, their extended family. So I think those factors are coming in, at least on the labor market, on the business side, it's a different story, right? I think there it's uh, the, we need, the issue about competition uh, is really important and creating competitive playing fields for companies and startups to succeed. Some of this is, though, I think being driven by technology. There are these network effects, right? So they're not going to go away in certain industries, but that doesn't explain all industries. Is the, do you see this as an American problem, or is it something that affects all mature economies? No, I think it is starting to affect most mature economies. Uh, but again, we in the U.S. have believed, and rightly so from our past, that we had this highly dynamic economy. When you get under the hood, it's not that way. And there are things we can do to re-stimulate that uh, on the policy front that I think are important. Well, that, that was going to be my next question, which is if you could wave a magic wand to restore dynamism to the American economy and other mature economies, what would you do? Competition policy, making sure that firms have a competitive playing field, that they can sink or swim on that and they can succeed. Um, on the, the, the dynamism with respect to labor markets, I think there's a whole host of other issues there, whether it's social programs with respect to things like child care and elder care and a whole host of other things that we could think about.
Could you give an example of the competitive policy that you're talking about that would be better than what's going on now? I think just simply antitrust policies, I mean, reinforcing them in certain industries. So you're saying there's too much concentration in certain Again, I won't industries. say that a blanket statement that that's true across all industries, mm -hmm. but I think in certain industries that's, that's quite possible. What about research and development? Do you think that there's enough being spent? I know that industry spends quite a bit on research and development, but over uh, you know, any number of decades, um, the, the, the percentage that the government spends on R&D, basic R&D, which often leads to big breakthroughs, right. um, has gone down quite a bit. Do you see a role for, for government yes. increasing spending in R&D like quite a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. the big shift that's happened over the course of several decades is companies aren't spending as much on R&D as they once did. There's no more Bell Labs, right, right at the, that scale. Now, that was a different story with a monopoly who could afford to do those things. That's understandable. But it shifted from the company, the basic R&D, to universities and university funding. And with the Bayh-Dole Act, universities then had an incentive to want to commercialize this because they could get an economic benefit from doing so. Before that act, they couldn't. So it really is the universities do the basic R&D, startups come out of the universities, grab it. The startups most often don't expect to be an operating concern going forward. They're looking to sell their technology to get onto a platform uh, where they can integrate that technology. That's a reasonable thing to do. But it all starts, like you just said, with the basic R&D funding. Because, uh, you know, th there's a very good book out about this recently. I think it was called Jumpstarting America or Jumpstarting America's Economy by uh, Simon Johnson. He's a former chief economist at the IMF. Right. And th it was his point, which is that uh, during the boom years of the 50s and coming out of World War II, there was this great partnership between universities and business, and uh, and, and the government would help fund a lot of right. fundamental basic research, which might take 20 years to come to fruition. Well, companies can't afford to wait 20 yeah. years. They need to. They, they're looking at the next quarter, the next year, and so that that is a, a piece of R and D that has been kind of lost. So no one's taking. So no one's taking those long bets. Only the government could do that because right. they can afford to to say, well, we don't. It's okay if it's not profitable. And it's not, yeah, and it's not like it's not happening. I'll give you mm -hmm. one example where it's happening right now: quantum computing. Mm. I mean, the government is heavily involved through the National Institutes of Standards and Technology and other agencies in bringing together a consortium of companies to really do almost what the moon launch is. I mean, we know we need to build these machines. There's a competitive race around the globe to build these machines. We don't actually know how yet. <laughs> There's a lot of problems to be solved between here and there. And so the government is convening, along with uh, nonprofit institutions and, and corporations, uh, a group to try to figure out exactly how to do this. That, so when the big issues like that come up, we actually can act. So I think we need to do more of that so we can really push the needle on the really hard technical issues, right, to create truly new products into the marketplace. Um, it, it's interesting because um, another, I guess, aspect of this is the idea that 
you know, we're in a trade war with trying to put our current dean <laughs> here at Wharton has made the arguments in various opinion pieces that we've run saying that it's, it's actually a race for technology, like who's going to be the technological leader. And these, the, the, the trade aspect of it is, is some fallout that comes from that. But that's kind of the guiding principle, I think, right? And so, and what's different is that, of course, China is, you know, it's more of a top-down situation. Right. They can they can spend a lot of money on research for this long-term research that we're right. saying we're not doing here. And so, that might be another way of if if you see that as a as a key competition going on, uh, that you know increasing R and D might be another way to level that playing field. Oh, I also. absolutely agree with that. Government spending on R and D. Yeah. Well, I think nobody's willing to take the risk mm-hmm. at these long-lived. You know, yeah. long gestation period technologies. That's the role of the government to, because a lot of that's just going to fail. Mm-hmm. Right? You're just not going to. You can see that even here on this campus with immunotherapy. I mean, it took a long time to bring this mm-hmm. to market, and now it's exploding on the scene in healthcare. It's changing the very nature of healthcare. Mm-hmm. And so, but that started with NIH funding at a very basic level mm-hmm. uh, to move the needle. No company was going to do that. Mm-hmm. You need the government to... And one of the... Th- going back to our earlier conversation, one of the things I do worry about is the crowding out effect. So given that if you just take defense entitlements and interest on the debt, that's the vast, vast majority of the federal budget. The, everything else is getting squeezed, and that has to be solved. Well, so, so uh, Pat, thank you so much for, for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Really appreciate your yeah. time. Uh, thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.